You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I'm going to catch a little bit of the context, so we'll read from verses 31 through 41. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our desire that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. We believe that when your word is rightly preached, that your voice is truly heard. We pray that you would speak to your people today through this text, that you would fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise at Christ and what he has done to redeem us from the slavery to sin in which we were once held Thank you that we have been transferred by your grace from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, and that you have set us free, that you have made us your own. We pray now that you would teach us and instruct us through your word, and may all of us fade into insignificance in light of the truth of this text, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We have all kinds of ways of dividing humanity up into groups and classes. A few weeks ago when Justin Peters was here, you, you saw me teasing him a little bit about being a southerner. And uh, I constantly do that with Justin. He teases me about the different quirks about being from the north. We divide people into north and south. We divide people up by geography. Um, You're from Mexico. You're from America. You're from Canada. We divide people up by race and class and gender and skin color and sex, male, female, uh, Republicans, Democrats. We have all kinds of labels that we put on people in order to identify them with different groups. And sometimes that can be Sometimes that can be helpful because it just helps us to think in terms of where people are at in, in different spheres. But ultimately, there is only two real categories of people. And ultimately, every other category falls into one of these two categories. And every other category really pales and becomes insignificant in the light of these two categories. And these are the two categories. The Bible describes all of humanity in two terms, either saved or unsaved. And that's it, either saved or unsaved. The Bible has all kinds of ways of describing these realities and metaphors and analogies that it uses to communicate this. We call them the redeemed and the unredeemed, the spiritual man and the natural man, the spiritual man and the carnal man, the spirit and the flesh, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, saved and unsaved, elect, non-elect. All of those are terms that we use to describe these two categories of human beings. Uh, There are true teachers and false teachers, true prophets and false prophets, the true church and the false church, true teaching and false teaching. There are only two categories. And no matter how you describe it, no matter what metaphor or analogy you choose to use, ultimately all of humanity falls into one of those two categories. There's no in-between category. 
There's no, there's no person who is sort of in between like a, a, a non-Christian Christian or a Christian non-Christian. I hear people use the term pre-Christian or pre-Christ follower. What does that mean? A pre-Christian? You mean non-Christian? You mean unredeemed? Isn't that a bit presumptuous to identify an unbeliever as a pre-Christian? That assumes that they're going to become a Christian at some point. And I guess you could call them that if everybody's going to become a Christian. But unless you know who the who it is among the unbelievers that are going to become believers, you can't really call them pre-Christians, can you? They're non-Christians. They're saved and they are unsaved. And all of humanity is divided into those two categories, the true church and that which is not the church, or believers and unbelievers. And really, isn't that division the only division that matters for all of eternity? Right? A million years into eternity, is it going to matter whether somebody was an American or a Canadian? Black or white? Male or female? Republican or Democrat? Prostitute or policeman? Does it really matter? Is there any other category that is going to matter a million years from now other than the redeemed? And the unredeemed, the saved and the unsaved, those in heaven and those in hell, that is the only division that really matters for anything. And that is how the Bible describes all of humanity. Now listen, it becomes very confusing when those who are in one camp pretend to be in the other camp. And that is what false prophets do. False prophets, false teachers, false brethren, false believers, they are in one camp, the unredeemed, and they pretend to be in the other camp. They pretend to be pious, they pretend to be children of God, They pretend to be children of the light. They pretend to love the truth. They pretend to teach the truth and to embrace the truth and to respond well to the truth. And they go on pretending. And sometimes that line gets blurred in our perspective because those who are in one camp are pretending to be in another camp. And yet Scripture tells us that you can tell who is who really in two different ways. Number one, doctrine. And number two, deeds. You can tell who the true believers are when you begin to ask them about Their doctrine. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about sin, God, Scripture, salvation? Then their, the true nature of their profession and the true nature of their character, where they're really at, begins to become crystal clear. Because if you ask a Mormon, what do you believe about God and Jesus and salvation? And they begin to tell you, suddenly it becomes very clear to an even a minimally observant Christian that we are dealing with a different gospel, a different God, a different Jesus, a different Bible than the true church is. Another way of telling the non-Christian from the Christian is by their deeds. Those who belong in the kingdom of Satan, those who are Satan's and are his, those who are his children, they behave in a certain way and their deeds betray them. That is why scripture describes the false teacher or the false prophet, the unbeliever, as one like a dog returning to its vomit or like a sow having washed outwardly to its wallowing in the mire. They eventually, though they profess for a period of time and pretend for a period of time to be believers, eventually they go right back to the mud from which they came. Eventually they return right back to the vomit that they once gave up. Horrible analogies, isn't it? That's not my words, it's God's word. But that is the reality of an unbeliever. Eventually they go right back in their conduct and in their behavior to what they once abandoned. False teachers will inevitably fall into some sin. Inevitably. And it is most likely, and almost a hundred percent of the time, if it's not greed, it's sexual immorality. Because they give it up for a period of time and profess to be true, and then the sheep's clothing comes off and it is revealed for everybody what they truly are, because they're in one category pretending to be in another, and pretty soon their deeds betray them. Now, that sounds a bit harsh to say that you can tell somebody by their deeds, and you can identify them by their deeds, but that's what Jesus taught. We live in a culture and a society that tells us on every front and constantly that it is 
it is wrong to judge people's deeds. If did you listen to the vice presidential debate a couple weeks ago? I wasn't going to get into this, but I go I will go ahead and do this. You, you heard it there plainly. And Joe Biden, who is a, a professing Catholic, uh, Paul Ryan, a practicing Catholic. There's a difference between professing and practicing. And even Joe Biden identified that difference between professing and practicing because during the midst of the debate, he said, I agree with my church's stance on abortion. I believe that it is wrong. I believe that it's it's uh, immoral. I agree with that. That is my faith perspective. But I don't let that affect my public policy or my life. Now, see, the assumption behind that is that you cannot judge the legitimacy of my profession by my behavior and my conduct, because we must keep them separate. So I can believe this sincerely with all of my heart, and I can do the polar opposite with all of my conduct. And you can never say that there is any illegitimacy to my profession because of what I do in my deeds. So I believe what my church teaches about abortion in my faith realm, but I reject that in my life and my public realm. And you know how many people there are in this country that bought that hook, line, and sinker and thought, no, that makes sense. Right? Because we have been taught to think that way. And nobody ever, if I were there debating, which I sometimes wish that I were, I would have, I would have asked this question, do you do the same thing with slavery? Do you agree with your church's position on slavery, yet refuse to bring that into the public arena? Do you agree with your church's perspective on rape, but refuse to make that public policy? Do you agree with your church's perspective on murder, and wife-beating, but refuse to make that public policy. They don't, do they? Just that one issue. But we've been trained to think that way. That you cannot judge the legitimacy of somebody's profession just by looking at how they comport themselves and their deeds. Jesus said the exact opposite. You can judge the sincerity of somebody's profession and their doctrine by looking at their deeds. Because from a poisoned well comes poison water. And from a bad tree comes bad fruit. And if you look at the fruit, it will tell you what type of a tree it is coming off of. If it's bad fruit, it comes from a bad tree. If it's bad doctrine, it comes from a bad source. Bad well, bad water. That's what Jesus did in John chapter 8 with these unbelieving, believing Jews. They were believing, verse 30 and 31, but they were really unbelieving. And this whole chapter is designed to sort of strip the facade off of that belief. And Jesus told them, you say that you are free, but you're not. You need to be set free. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And they were indignant. Toward that, that he would suggest that they needed to be set free. And then Jesus identifies their need to be set free by pointing out to them, you have presumed to be sons of Abraham, right? You've been presumed to be sons of Abraham because you have enjoyed the benefits of living in Abraham's home, like Ishmael. But like Ishmael, you are not a son, a legitimate son in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of, of God. You are nothing more than a slave. And because of your unbelief, you are in danger of being cast out of the kingdom and being excluded from the benefits and blessings. Because you are a slave and not a son. You presume to be a son, but you are nothing more than a slave. But here's the good news. As a slave, you can be set free and you can be made a son. How? When the son sets you free, then you're free indeed. So you can become free and you can become a son if the son gives you freedom, if the son makes you free, and if the son, in making you free, then makes you a son of God, and then you can have the rights of sonship. Now, in, that's where we pick it up at the end of verse 36. We're picking it up at verse 37. We're going to look at verses 37 through 41. And Jesus is going to demonstrate to them or show them three things about these Jews. Three things that revealed the fact that they still needed to be set free. Verses 37 and 38 are repeated in verses 39 through 41. There's a little bit of a structural issue that I want you to see in the text here. We're going to take verses 37 all the way through verse 41. But here's how we're going to do it. 
Verses 37 and 38 identify these three things. But then what happens is in verse 39, Jesus, or the Jews repeat the same claim that they made in verse 33. Jesus then repeats the same point, but in clearer language in verses 38, or sorry, 39 through 41. So rather than going from the top of the text all the way down through the bottom, verses 37 is going through like that, all the way down to verse 41. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to look at those three things, but we're going to look at them in both passages, sort of, or both chunks of that text sort of in parallel. And here's why. If I start at the beginning and went to the end, I would just end up repeating myself. And I repeat myself enough without having excuse to do so. So we're going to handle a little bit differently. We're going to see in verses 40, 39 through 41 that these things that Jesus teaches there are a repetition of verses 37 and 38. Here are the three things. Number one was their attitude toward Jesus. He says you, they really, they hated him because they were seeking to kill him. Number two was their attitude toward scripture because my word has no place in you. And the third thing was their deeds that they did. He said, these deeds you are doing are the deeds of your father. And you're going to see that he's not talking about Abraham. He's not talking about God. And they're starting to clue into this. All right, verses 37 and 38. I want you to look at these three things. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. That's their attitude toward Jesus. Because my word has no place in you. That's their attitude toward truth and toward scripture. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. That's their deeds, their attitude toward Jesus, their attitude toward Scripture, and the deeds that they did, their behavior, their works. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Now all they're doing is repeating what they said in verse 33. Did you catch that? We are descendants of Abraham, verse 33. And Jesus shows them, yeah, as descendants of Abraham, but you still need to be set free. And now they just repeat it in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Now I ask you this. Jesus in verse 37 said, I know you are Abraham's descendants. He didn't deny it. He didn't contradict them. And it's not as if Jesus didn't hear them. So what are they doing in verse 39 when they say, again, repeating it, Abraham is our father? Why repeat that when Jesus has already acknowledged it and he has obviously heard it? Why did they say it again? Here's my suspicion. Up until this point, verse 38, the Jews have assumed and thought that Jesus was speaking in physical terms, right? He said, I'll set you free. They said, we've never been enslaved to anybody. They thought he was talking about national and political freedom, physical realities. And Jesus then begins to describe spiritual slavery. You're a slave to sin. And I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you're trying to kill me, so you're still a slave to sin. Then in verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. Now, what are they speaking about in verse 39? What have they come to the, what, what conclusion have they come to? He's not speaking about physical reality. He's talking about spiritual reality. So they don't say, Abraham, we're descendants of Abraham. They say, Abraham is our father, indicating something more, a spiritual kinship, right? Jesus has identified their physical kinship and shown that that means nothing. Now they're trying to plead their spiritual kinship. We're Abraham's descendants more than just physically. We're Abraham's descendants spiritually. He is our father spiritually. Now they know that Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities that are at play. And in describing the spiritual realities that are at play, they're getting the sense that he is not describing them in any positive way, right? He is referred to their father. And they're able to clue into this fact. Um, he knows that Abraham is our father, and he's not speaking of Abraham as being our father, and he has been speaking for this whole passage about Jesus, or the, the father, God being his father, and now he's distinguishing between our father and his father. And that leads them to one conclusion, that Jesus is saying that their father was the devil, that they have a spiritual father other than God and other than Abraham, and they are led to one conclusion. He is describing a wicked spiritual father that is ours. So they they promote again the idea that they are Abraham's descendants. We come from Abraham. We're his children. Spiritual kinship. 
And then in verses 39 and 40, you see Jesus repeat the same thing. If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. That's a repetition of their attitude toward him. A man who has told you the truth, that indicates the reality toward the truth or God's word, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. Up until now, it's been very veiled. It's getting more and more specific. And then if you look down at verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And it's clear, right? No more speaking in veiled analogy, veiled terms, spiritual terms, physical terms. It all comes clear when Jesus says in verse 44, your true spiritual kinship is Satan. Now this is amazing to be said to a group of people who in verses 30 and 31 are identified as those who had believed in him, right? These are people who had believed in him whose father still remained Satan. Because as we saw before, this is a shallow, unbelieving belief. It is a mental assent to certain facts, but it lacked regeneration or true spiritual conversion. So let's look at the first thing. Their attitude toward Jesus, verse 37. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Every unbeliever, no matter what race, tribe, kindred, tongue, nation they come to, every unbeliever has within them a deep-seated hatred and a deep-seated animosity toward the true God of the Bible and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every unbeliever has that. Every person is born into this world with that hostility in play. And over the course of life, it grows and increases and expands and becomes more and more overt. Now, for some unbelievers, that deep-seated hostility is very noticeable. Think Christopher Hitchens. Think Sam Harris. Think these raging atheists out there doing all of their work, blaspheming Jesus Christ and writing all of these books, hating the true God of the Bible and expressing their hatred for Him. But for some unbelievers, that hostility is not overt. Some unbelievers, it's almost unnoticeable. But it is nonetheless there. Now, you say, Jim, I know unbelievers, and they... they they're fine with Jesus. They think the idea of Jesus is a great idea. I mean, they celebrate Christmas. They send out Christmas cards with little verses about Jesus on it. And they uh, they don't seem overtly hostile to Jesus at all. They, they are fine if I pray in Jesus' name. And they kind of like the idea of having a Jesus there in the sky. If you press them, if you press them toward the true Jesus of the Bible, and you say, here is what the true God teaches, and here is what the true God said, you will find that hostility, which is not overt, become very overt. Because they will reject that, and they will actually hate the true God of the Bible. An unbeliever will love Jesus so long as he is can, so long as he can have the Jesus of his mind, the idol of his heart, right? Who gives him everything that he wants. Unbelievers love that Jesus. They're fine with that Jesus. But if that unbeliever that you might be thinking of was forced to sit and listen to the teachings of Jesus and be in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth, like the Jews in John 8, that hostility would be very visible very quickly. Because every unbeliever is born with an innate hostility and hatred for the one true God of the Bible and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says in verse 37, you're right, your father is Abraham, you are descendants of Abraham in a physical sense. And yet, as you, if you claim that Abraham is your father, if you were Abraham's children in a spiritual sense, you would be doing the deeds that Abraham does. You are his physical descendants, yet here's the incongruity of this. You're seeking to kill me. You're seeking to kill me. You're Abraham's descendants physically, and you're trying to kill Abraham's God. Does that seem wrong? I know you're Abraham's descendants. And yet, in spite of your physical descendant ancestry, in spite of that, you're seeking to kill me, Abraham's God. That's their attitude toward Jesus. And that's what Jesus is pointing out, that this incongruity between the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. And of all the people who should have embraced him, they should have. And yet, Jesus says, yet... 
you're seeking to kill me. Look down at the same thing stated in verse 40, uh, 39 and 40, verse 39 and 40. If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. And this desire to kill him goes all the way back to chapter 7. Remember that? They tried to seize him. They tried to lay hands on him. And he escaped from their midst. They were seeking to kill him. Everybody in Jerusalem knew it. And here's John's point. By the time you get to chapter 8, none of that has changed. The only thing that's changed is now it is masquerading under this guise of feigned, un, feigned belief, which is really unbelief. Their intentions are the same. Their desires are the same. Their goal is the same. They still want to kill him. Jesus knows that. They know that. Everybody knows it. But now it's under the guise of belief. They think that they have embraced him, and they really have not embraced him. They still desire to kill him. Is that what Abraham did? Let me ask you the question. When Abraham received a messenger from heaven with a message from God who gave him the word of God, how did Abraham receive that? We saw it in chapter 18. Right? Did you see what Abraham did there in Genesis chapter 18? That was an appearance of Yahweh. Now, in the Old Testament, when there were appearances of God, whether it was to Isaiah and Ezekiel or Daniel or Abraham, Isaac or Jacob or any of those men, Noah, when God appeared to any of those men, how did God appear to them? It was a physical form, a physical manifestation. But you know whom they were seeing? Do you know whom it was? It was Jesus. John chapter 1 says no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in His full glory at any time. Nobody has seen the Father at any time. But you know who men saw in the Old Testament? They saw the pre-incarnate Christ. They saw the pre-incarnate Jesus. Wouldn't have been called Jesus back then, but He was Yahweh, the Lord. It is the Son who has revealed God. So all of the Old Testament appearances of God are nothing other than the second person of the Trinity, the Divine Son, manifesting the glory of God, and that's whom Abraham saw. Now listen, when the Son appeared to Abraham from heaven and gave Abraham a message, how did Abraham respond? He bowed down, he worshipped, he rushed to get food, and he presented it, he wanted to wash his feet, he listened with reverence, he obeyed and he believed the word that the divine messenger, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, gave to him. Now when the divine Son appeared to these Jews from heaven, with a message from God, how did these Jews respond? They wanted to kill him. Do you see the difference? That's obvious, isn't it? You see the difference? When Jesus appeared to Abraham, Abraham welcomed him, loved him, worshipped him, and obeyed him, and believed him. When Jesus appeared to these Jews, they wanted to kill him. That's the difference. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 40. As it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. When I appeared to Abraham, Jesus is saying, he didn't try and kill me. He loved me, worshipped me, obeyed me, and believed the word that I told him. You are not Abraham's descendants. You see, if you were Abraham's descendants, you would respond like Abraham. If you had Abraham's faith in your heart and not just his blood in your veins, you would respond to me the same way that Abraham did. You would respond to the word of God the same way that Abraham did, but instead they were trying to kill him. You can tell the spiritual situation or condition of a person's heart by their response to the true God of the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus. When you push them toward that Jesus and you show them what He says and what He taught and who He is, their hostility reveals the condition of their heart. Their hostility or rejection of that Jesus reveals the condition of their heart and their true spiritual paternity. Now second, not only their response to their attitude toward Jesus, but their attitude towards God's Word. Jesus said in verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. You seek to kill me because my Word has no place in you. What is it that led to their murderous intentions? What was the reason behind their murderous intentions? It was because His Word, that is Jesus' Word, had no place in them. That word's kind of an interesting word. The one translated has no place in. It literally means it, it, it 
has no foothold or no grip upon. It makes no advance in. And it kind of had the idea of something resting and then producing fruit or going on with that individual. My word does not find a resting place or a foothold in you by which it advances and continues. When it came to Jesus' word, it bounced off of those hard human hearts like a BB off a boxcar. Just ping and it was gone. It found no place. It was not received. It was like the seed which fell alongside the path in the rocky soil. It didn't spring up. It was quickly snatched away by Satan because that word found no place in their hearts. Their hearts were so filled with murderous intentions toward Jesus that His word could find no place in them. Think of it that way. So filled with rage and animosity were they that His word could not find a foothold and move on with them and actually produce its work in them. My word has no place in you. Why does, his, why does His Word have no place in them? It is because they are of their father, the devil. Their nature determined whether or not God's Word would have any foothold or place in them at all. I want you to look at this. This is not the only time Jesus mentions this right here in this passage. In verse 37, He says, My Word has no place in you. Verse 38, Because you do the things which you heard from your father. Right. So their nature kept the Word of God from having its place in them. Now look down at verse 39. You're doing the deeds of Abraham, as it is you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. Right? Who told him the truth? They rejected the truth. Why? Because they were doing the deeds of their father, which was Satan. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. They were deaf to his word. Why? Verse 44. You are of your father the devil. The devil's children do not hear the word of God. They don't receive it. Look at verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear, because you are not of God. What was the underlying, what was the underlying problem? They were not of God. They weren't His children. They weren't His sheep. They did not belong to Him. Their father was the devil. And so they were locked in bondage, in darkness, and under His grip. And they were unable to hear the Word of God. The Word of God cannot be heard by an unbelieving, unregenerate, sinful child of the devil. Because of their nature, they were unable to receive His Word. The natural man, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. The natural man hears the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word, the reading of the Word. He hears that and he can't understand it. He can't, he can't appreciate it. He can't discern it or assess it. He can't receive it. Why? He's a child of the devil. And without the Spirit of God in him, that word can find no place and cannot move forward. Now, weren't you once a child of the devil? I was. All of us were, right? We were born into his kingdom. We were born his property. We were born his spiritual allies in hostility and rebellion to God. Just as much locked in darkness as anybody else. And yet here we are. Loving the word. Appreciating the Word, responding to the Word, obeying the Word. Let me ask you a question. Why, if you were a child of God, are you here today with the Word of God having its place and doing its work in you when these Jews were born children of Satan, just like you, and they rejected and could not hear the Word? What is the difference? What is the difference? There's only two answers to that. Either the difference rests with me, there's something in me that is less hostile to God, more spiritually savvy, more mature, more discerning, more wise, less in bondage, less in depravity, less depraved than those Jews. 
or there is something different about what the Spirit of God did in me that He did not do in those Jews. Now, if you believe the former, that there is something different in you, then you are to praise or to thank in some measure, to some degree, for your salvation, for what happened. But if it is the second, then there is only one person who can receive praise for my salvation, and that is God, because He has done something in my heart to set me free from that that He did not choose to do to those Jews. By the will of God, by His providence, by His sovereign, distinguishing grace, we are what we are, even though we were what we were. And our nature kept us dead to in sin and dead and deaf to the Word of God. But He, by His grace, has set us free so that we can hear Him. It's not something different in us, friends. It's something different in what God has done for us, on our behalf, and to us that makes the change. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, Listen to that. Our gospel did not come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. It's possible for the gospel to come in word only. People hear it, and they don't hear it. But it's also possible for the gospel to come not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's what produces belief. It is the gospel coming in power and in full conviction the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, by the will of God, setting the sinner free so that he hears and responds to the gospel message. First Thessalonians chapter 2 says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now to the Thessalonians, who believed? Thessalonians did. Who accepted the gospel as the word of God and not as the word of men? Thessalonians did. Who embraced the truth? The Thessalonians did. Who is to be thanked for that? God is. Paul doesn't say, I thank you that you believed. I thank you that you received it. I thank you that you discerned it. He says, God is to be thanked because God has set you apart and you believed, you received, the Word of God has gone forth and done its work in you who believed. But God is to be thanked for that because by God's grace, they believed. What is it that takes you and I from being slaves of sin in Satan's kingdom and makes us children of God. Our effort, our works, not at all. It's the grace of God, always has been, always will be. That was the case with the Thessalonians. It's the case with us. It was the case with Abraham. Abraham was a saved man, not because of something that he did, but because of God's distinguishing grace. Genesis chapter 15 says, Abraham believed the Lord and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. And then God says of Abraham in Genesis 26 verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. That's the type of man that Abraham was. He was a man who believed God and trusted God, unlike the Jews in John chapter 8. Now they have professed, and they're going to profess again in verse 39, we're Abraham's children. Abraham is our father, not just physically, but we are his spiritual kinship his spiritual descendants, and Jesus is saying, no, if that were true, you would respond to me the same way that Abraham does, but you didn't. And if that were true, you would respond to my word the same way that Abraham did, but you haven't. You're not mine, and you do not belong to God. You are of your father, the devil. Their attitude toward Jesus reflected that. Their attitude toward his word reflected that. And the third thing, their deeds reflected that. Look at verse 39. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. That's a very vivid picture. I want you to reflect upon it for a second. You do the things which you heard from your father. What had they heard? What were they trying to do, first of all? They're trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus is saying, 
You're trying to kill me, and you're doing this because you are hearing this from your father. The devil is whispering in your ear, and you are doing exactly what your spiritual father is telling you to do. Now, there are unbelievers out there who hate Jesus, and do you think that they think that devil's on, I was going to say on their shoulder, but that's just a caricature, right? little devil on his shoulder on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. The picture is, is not even cute like that. It, it is literally the, the vivid image of Satan is giving the command and you are walking in lockstep obedience to do exactly what he wants you to do. Who was behind the plot to kill Jesus? They were trying to kill him and they were doing exactly what Satan wanted them to do. They were in hostility to him. They hated him. And that was exactly what their father was whispering in their ear. They are hearing it all along. They don't even realize that they are hearing it, but they are Satan's children. Look down at verse 30, 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. Now they know he's not talking about Abraham, and they know he is not talking about God. Jesus is alluding to something, and they are catching on to it. He says it in verse 44. You're of your father, the devil. Now there he comes right out and says it. In verse 41, he's just saying to them, what you are doing, you are doing the deeds of your father. Now, do you have to be a Satan worshiper to be a child of Satan? No. Do you have to swear allegiance to Beelzebub and read the satanic verses in order to be a child of the devil? Do you have to dance around a pentagon, sacrifice chickens, and drink blood? You don't have to do any of that to be a devil, to be a child of Satan. You and I, by birth, are born into that kingdom in spiritual allegiance with him. And it's not that we ever swear allegiance at any particular time, but just the manifestation of our flesh and our fallenness, and our hostility and animosity to the one true God, that bitterness and that distance only grows and grows and intensifies over the course of our lives. And that hostility that we have toward God is a manifestation of nothing more, nothing less than the very kingdom in which we live. We hate God. We hate the one true God. We are born into that situation, that condition. Satan is our father. We do the deeds of our father. We walk in lockstep with him, and we are in spiritual alliance against the kingdom of light because we hate the light and we love darkness. That's how each of us is born. Now, these Jews, do you think that they viewed themselves as children of the devil? Now, they probably would have said the same thing that most unbelievers would say. Right? I've never danced around a pentagram, sacrificed chickens, and drank blood before in my life. How can you call me a child of the devil? How can you say that Satan is our spiritual father when we believe that God is our spiritual father? They would have never fashioned themselves as being children of the devil. They would have fashioned themselves as believing in God and doing the right thing. But listen... Do you realize that Satan will carry more people to hell through self-righteous, works-based religion than he will through Satanism? He will carry more people to hell who think that they are righteous in their own good deeds and their own works, who think that they are following the one true God and think that they are doing the right thing and think that they are walking in lockstep with God. He will drag more people to hell that way than he ever will through people worshiping him. Because Satan doesn't care if you worship an idol or a block of wood or Allah or a demon, or him, or any other idol. He doesn't care. Just so long as you don't worship the one true God. Just so long as you are not transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's Son. As long as that transfer doesn't take place, Satan is going to drag you to hell, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, a prostitute or a policeman, a good person, or in the eyes of the world, or a bad person in the eyes of the world. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're a warden at the prison or a prisoner at the prison. If you go to hell, that's all Satan cares about. You don't have to be swearing allegiance to Satan to be his child. We are born there. That is where we are born. And the fact that we in our flesh as unregenerate people do the deeds of our Father 
is another evidence that we need to be set free from sin. Because Jesus identified three things about these Jews. Three things about these Jews. Their attitude toward Jesus, their attitude toward God's Word, and their deeds that they do. Now you heard this last week if you were watching the presidential debate. And I hardly ever, I hardly, I'm not getting political, okay? Understand that? I'm just, this is observations from what's going on around us. If you listen to the presidential debate, you heard at the end of that Governor Mitt Romney say, we live in a country where we believe that all people are children of the same God. Did you hear that statement? Did you hear the evangelical community get up in arms over that statement? Should the evangelical community have been up in arms over that statement? That lie is more devilish, more fiendish, more satanic as anything said by the other side. That lie, if believed, will send people to hell. The other side can lie about taxation or foreign policy or whatever's going on. But listen, when somebody lies about who is and who is not a child of God, that lie damns. We are not all children of the same God. We are all, we were all children of the same God, the God of this age, Satan, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But not every person in this world is a child of God. You are a child of God when you repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation and you are regenerated by the Spirit of God and you have been given new life and you have turned from your sin. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have been given new heart and new affections. It is repentance and faith in the one true God that makes you a child of God. Not just by being born into this world are you a child of God. You are only a child of God by repentance and faith. These Jews still needed to be set free from sin because they remained hostile to Jesus. They remained hostile to the truth. And they were doing the deeds of their father, the devil. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have set those who have believed upon you free from sin and from Satan. There is nothing for us to fear. It is by your grace that these things have been made ours. It is not by our own doing or our own abilities. And we thank you that these things rested outside of our abilities, for we would have failed entirely to keep your law and to do those things which might bring us righteousness. But instead, you have given us the righteousness of your Son by faith, and we thank you for that. We pray, O God, that your word might have its place in us, and that you would do a mighty work in bringing those who do not know you to faith in your Son, that they might be set free from sin and from Satan and from themselves. If there are unbelievers among us, Lord, we pray that the preaching of your word and the truth that is here revealed in it might set them free by the Son and that they might come, become free and be free indeed, everlastingly and eternally, and that we as your people might rejoice in that freedom. We pray, O oh God, that you would be glorified as we respond to the truth of your word. Give us hearts that are humble and submissive to your truth, that we might um, demonstrate by our conduct and our lives that we have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Thank you for all of your grace and kindness to us in Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.